I don't know, I just like problem solving. One of my earliest memories is of asking my mother to show me how to tie my shoe. She showed me how to tie a shoe with one loop, and I then said, but I want to be able to do it with two loops. And she said, well, figure that out for yourself, which I proceeded to do. And I remember feeling great satisfaction over doing that, over being able to tie a two-loop knot in my shoes. You just heard economic science laureate Christopher Sims. I'm Fanny Harjestam, the producer of Nobel Prize Conversations. So problem solving was on Christopher Sims' mind even as a boy. And he came to dedicate his whole career to it, partly because of a stubborn uncle who encouraged him. Sims went from problem solving like tying shoelaces to central and classical questions in economics. For example, how economic policy like cutting taxes affects macroeconomic variables such as inflation. In 2011, Christopher Sims and fellow economist Thomas Sargent were awarded the prize in economic sciences for developing methods that helped define what caused what in economics, such as sudden oil price rises or changes in productivity. But Sims also focuses on newer areas of research, such as money, the importance of money. For example, if you walk into a sandwich shop trying to get a sandwich without paying money, but simply promising to pay later, you're not likely to get your sandwich. Why? The host for the Nobel Prize Conversations podcast is Adam Smith. Adam is the chief scientific officer at Nobel Media, an outreach arm of the Nobel Prize. This podcast series is brought to you with support from Riksbanken, the Swedish central bank. So, let's hear more about the sandwich shop and the importance of money, about terrific teachers, what it's like to be politically engaged as a Nobel laureate, and Christopher Sims' Canadian horse, with a name that's almost impossible to pronounce. I last interviewed you back in 2011 in Nobel Week, I think. What's your abiding memory of those days in Stockholm when you came to receive the prize? Oh... There's so much going on in those days. <laughs> it's hard to pick any one thing out. Um, I had my whole family, my brother and sister and all my grandchildren there. So one of the great aspects of it was a chance. Th- we got a chance to hang out together uh, in very happy circumstances. <laughs> yeah, that is nice. <laughs> you know, this year, one of the laureates scheduled their marriage on the morning of the Nobel Prize Awards Ceremony and Banquet. <laughs> that seems a little risky. Well, they said, they said that it was, you know, somebody else had managed to help them get the whole family together, so they might as well take advantage of the situation. <laughs> I asked you at the time how the prize was affecting you, and that was two months mm. in, eight years mm. on. What lasting effect is it having, if any? It certainly makes people aware of me and my work that never would have uh, been aware of it or, or of me before. So I get many, many invitations to speak, and I accept some of them. So I'm ending up doing more talking to the public and to other economists than I would have otherwise. It also, because I'm now nationally and internationally known, it makes informal relationships with graduate students and undergraduates a little 
more formal and standoffish than they might have been before. I try to get over that, but but people are very aware of being next to a Nobel Prize winner. In fact, one of the obvious consequences of being a Nobel Prize winner is that every time I go to a conference or give a talk, there are hundreds of selfie requests. <laughs> I remember before I won the prize, one of my ex-students lamented the fact that there were hardly any pictures of me on the Internet. And that is certainly no longer true. <laughs> you, you've already answered, really, but how are you at handling your time? Are you very strict with accepting the invitations you like? And I'm still full-time teaching at Princeton, so I don't have a room to do as much traveling around the world and speaking as some Nobel Prize winners do. I accept every request, just nearly every request, that is talking to economists about my work. When there are people asking me to do more general things, then I'm much more selective. I get, and I'm sure other Nobel Prize winners get, uh, many requests where you realize that they want a Nobel Prize winner on the podium to be photographed next to a bunch of other people who are local industrialists or something. There really wouldn't be any intellectual exchange, and I generally turn those things down. Yes. There must also be many opportunities to use your status to promote some cause or other. And it must be tempting, but on the other hand, you have to discipline yourself, I guess. There are many petitions where people would like to get as many Nobel Prize winning economist names on them as possible. I do sign some of them when I th think it's something where my own where my own expertise is relevant and I believe in the cause but I probably turn down about two-thirds of those requests. You received your prize just two months. I mean, the announcement of your prize was just two months after Black Monday and the crash. Um, mm -hmm. That must have meant that at the time, given that you work on models that seek to predict the effectiveness of policymaking on, on the economy, that, that lots of people were, I suppose, very particularly interested in whether your models are good at their job. Was the timing in any way kind of stressful for you? Or? No, not really. I mean, the, in the wake of the Great Recession, there were a lot of people who said our existing models are clearly deficient because they didn't predict the Great Crash. But when you're evaluating forecasting models, one always has to ask, compared to what? What Great Recession and Black Monday are we talking about? The Great Recession referred to here was the global economic downturn that followed the financial crisis of 2007-2008, also known as the subprime mortgage crisis, because it started out in the housing market in the US. It soon turned into an international banking crisis, affecting the global economy, when the investment bank Lehman Brothers went bankrupt in September 2008. And the Black Monday that Adam Smith mentioned was the 9th of August 2011. On that Monday morning, US and global stock markets fell dramatically as traders responded to what happened on Friday night just before that weekend. Namely, a credit rating downgrade of the United States sovereign debt by credit rating agency Standard & Poor's. Central banks, policymakers in general, were relying on models that were closely related to current academic research, which did not may pay much attention to the possibility of great financial disruption. 
There were a few models that did, but they didn't seem to help fit the data very very much. Hmm. So that the models that were in use in practice um, didn't pay much attention to this possibility. But even the one models that did include analysis of what would happen with financial disruption didn't forecast the crash. They they improved on the existing models only in recognizing that that actually this was a financial crash and was likely to take longer to recover from than was predicted by models that ignored the financial sector. Nobody had a model that said if there's a huge drop in the housing price, things will begin to collapse. In fact, there were papers that were written before the crash that asked what would happen with a big drop in in housing prices and concluded, well, it would be a problem, but not a really big problem. Mm. Uh, And that was because... Not so much because people had the wrong models is because people weren't collecting data. We didn't know the extent to which financial sector had created fragility and sensitivity to a decline in housing prices. We, we knew the decline in housing prices would uh, depress demand and create a, a recession, but that it would completely disrupt the financial sector. We didn't understand. How interesting. Yes, crudely, if you were studying, I don't know, medicine, and you were looking at cause and effect on the human body, the human body tends to stay pretty much the same. But in your case, you're studying cause and effect on a system which is has many ramifications and is constantly evolving itself. One way to think of it is, well, if you take a broad view of medicine, including psychiatry and psychology, it's all about studying individuals' effects of all kinds of causes on an individual. Economics tries to think about cause and effect over hundreds of thousands or hundreds of millions of people. Um, So in principle, economics is much harder, which means that in fact, we have to simplify. Our models are all, we always know our models are oversimplified approximations to the real world uh, because we can't go down to the level of individual behavior and build up models from interactions of individual human beings. An, a model of an individual human being is already too complicated for the biggest supercomputers. In a way, you're, you're an illustration of the lovely melting pot of American heritage, lots of different influences. <laughs> Would you describe them? My grandfather on my mother's side was immigrated to the United States at the age of 12 or 13 with his mother and two brothers. They were Estonian Jews. Estonia at that time was part of Russia. He, he wrote an essay called The Story of a Russian Jew, an autobiographical essay. And it, he, they left at a time when policy of the Russian czar was shifting to shrink opportunities for Jews in Russia, and they had to flee in secret, though it's never been clear to us exactly why they were fleeing through the woods in secret to get to Germany and a boat to the U.S. Uh, My grandmother on that side has ancestry going back to the Mayflower. Uh, She was uh, a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution for a while. The Daughters of the American Revolution, DAR, is a patriotic society created in the end of 19th century in the United States. Membership is limited to direct lineal descendants of soldiers or others involved in the United States' path towards independence. 
applicants must be personally acceptable to the society, and today the organization says it practices a non-discrimination policy. However, in 1939, the African-American opera singer Marian Anderson, one of the finest contraltos of her time, was denied the opportunity to perform in Dark Constitution Hall because of her race. As a response, she held a historic concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, singing in front of a crowd of 75,000 people. She resigned over there having cancelled a concert by a, a black singer on racial grounds. <laughs> and my grandfather used to greet me and my brother and all his other, all my grandfather's other grandchildren, he used to greet us by saying, well, Chris, what do you think of this present situation of the country? <laughs> he was an economist and a member of the first National Labor Relations Board. Did you have a good answer to that question? We were always stumped. I, it always made me think I ought to think about what the present situation of the country was. Uh, my younger brother says it always scared him to death. <laughs> um, but um, you, we knew we were part of a family with a tradition of public service and, and interest in economics. And I had an uncle who was also a labor economist who for years worked to convince me that I should become an economist starting when I was probably nine years old. He must have seen <clears throat> some fire in you. He had an idea that I could be a good economist, I guess. <laughs> then on my father's side, both grandparents were immigrants from England and Northern Ireland, though I never knew them. They both died while my father was still in high school. Do you think it makes a difference to have that international mix? Well, I wasn't very conscious of it as I, as I grew up. I just thought it was a normal grandma and grandpa <laughs> But it does give you perspective when you start seeing anti-immigrant rhetoric, as we see in the U.S. political scene now. When my uh, great-grandmother immigrated, I'm sure she knew no English. She worked as a, taking in laundry, and the boys she came with probably also at the time knew no English. These would not have been selected out as high-quality immigrants if there had been a rule like that at the time. But they made their way in the U.S. and became positive contributors. In due course, produced other positive contributors. So it's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a very important message to get across. What sort of child were you? What sort of child was yeah. I? I don't know what to say about that. Um, I suppose we should have asked your parents. but <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> From inside, I just thought I was an ordinary kid. So, <laughs> and I did do very well in school. Was that easy? Was, it, was that all effortless? Or were you a very hard worker? Um, I didn't think of myself as a particularly hard worker. So it's not that it was effortless, but I kind of enjoyed school yeah. and did the work I was supposed to do. I played American football in high school and was in the high school band. What was your instrument? Trombone. Aha. Do you still play? Yes. Oh, that's nice. Gosh. Do you still play in a band? No, I haven't played in a band in a long time. They, um, when I was president of the American Economic Association and in charge of the program, there was, at the time, a tradition of there being a music interlude at the American Economic Association meetings, one of the slots taken up with a jazz group, and I played with them. 
but I haven't played in a band in in a long time. One day we must put together a some kind of band of laureates alone. Many of you out there. Maths figured very big, though. You were very talented at maths and enjoyed it tremendously. Yes. What was it that appealed to you so much about it? I don't know. I just liked problem solving. One of my earliest memories is of asking my mother to show me how to tie my shoe. She showed me how to tie a shoe with one loop, and I then said, but I want to be able to do it with two loops. And she said, well, figure that out for yourself, which I proceeded to do. And I remember feeling great satisfaction <laughs> over knowing that, over being able to tie a two-loop knot in my shoes. Now, I imagine that's an exceptional story for two reasons. One, that your mother said that to you. Maybe three reasons. Two, that you took the challenge and didn't just get in a huff and say, well, that's not fair. And three, that you figured it out. It's not that hard to figure out. (laughs) But then again, I think I must have been four or five years old at the time. Or maybe less, I don't remember. I imagine it is a little hard to figure out at that age, maybe at any age. I also had a high school teacher who was really terrific. I had three good high school teachers in math, but one of them was a very lucky draw. It was um, Stephen Willoughby, who later became, I think, president of uh, the main association of math teachers in the United States. Uh, And he was just terrific as a teacher, uh, not just for me. He, he, was, he was very good at the basic techniques of keeping order and keeping students' attention in class, and yet he taught us trigonometry at a level that was way above what most people were teaching high school students at the time. And can you summarize or capture what it was about him that made him such a good teacher? I don't know that there's any... One thing, some of it was his just his ability to keep keep in touch with the class. And even though he was teaching at a high level, it wasn't just the top 15% of the class that was following. Everybody was paying attention. Uh, but on top of that, he did it. He made you feel you were discovering things as he talked, talked rather than that he was preaching truth to you that you needed to absorb. A little like the shoelace. Mm -hmm. Interesting because having experienced a great teacher and then teaching yourself, you must try and capture some of that in your own teaching. Right, but I'm not nearly as good at it as he was. (laughs) What made you turn away from pure mathematics and apply it? Was there one moment when you realised that your uncle was right and you needed to become an economist, or what happened? I was a math major as an undergraduate, But I did try to preserve options by taking, I think, three economics courses while I was an undergraduate. And I even discussed with my senior thesis advisor, who was a mathematician, Andrew Gleason, where to go to graduate school in mathematics. But as I thought about it, I decided that I didn't really want to be working with abstractions all the time. (laughs) I wanted to do work in an area that had a little more contact with real-world issues. Economics was a natural possibility. I wrote an undergraduate thesis on information theory, which Andrew Gleason passed off to people in the engineering department to evaluate. 
And they tried to persuade me to go to graduate school in electrical engineering. <laughs> That's interesting. Why did you choose to go for the application of math to social science? I don't really know for sure why. Maybe, maybe some of it was my uncle's constant propagandizing. It's also true that I was politically active as an undergraduate and so was very interested in public policy. And that may have been part of what led me to think about social science. What were your politics then? And are those still your politics? Pretty much. I mean, at the time, I was mo most active in a group called Toxin that, that was for control of nuclear pro pro proliferation. Mm -hmm. We helped organize one of the big first big student demonstrations in Washington over the test ban treaty. So I still am worried about nuclear pro proliferation, though it's not the most central political issue now. Were you very worried at that time? I'm not sure it's any, we're any safer from it now. We may be less safe. <laughs> at least we don't have the two superpowers explicitly balanced against each other and ready to make a rapid response to any sign of the others attacking. But the number of countries that have nuclear weapons now has grown, and the chance that they will get used is still still far from zero. I mean, the time you're talking about when you were active in Toxin, there was, it seems to, seems to me, there was a far more sort of palpable risk. People felt it more keenly. Now, it doesn't seem to be a common... Uh, fear. I mean, remember at that time, uh, or around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, hmm. where the chance that somebody would miscalculate and that we would end up uh, in nuclear war really seemed fairly high. Uh, we don't have that same. The big power, big nuclear powers, confront each other here and there around the world, but they don't directly threaten to use nuclear weapons on each other. And that makes people less conscious of the risk. Hmm. My politics are still sort of left. I'm in favor of, I think our government is too small in various dimensions. I think we could do more. We ought to do more about confronting inequality in the U.S. But this is sort of an economist left-wingism, which is not extreme left. <laughs> Uh, I've signed a petition in favor of a carbon tax, which some of the most left of the Democrats now think is a right-wing solution to, or a right-wing non-solution to climate crisis. I'm somewhere to the left of the middle, but to the right of the of the fringe left. In your role as somebody who makes models that help people plan policy. Is it dangerous to be identified as politically active because you're then not trusted by the other side? Yes, although I, when I'm doing any professional work, I try very carefully to, to separate values from analysis. In a way, I'm distrusted for being a little unpredictable <laughs> in that I don't necessarily take a position that lines up with one ideological side or another every time. So you do have to worry about that. There are people whose views, whose analysis seem to shift around to fit the current policy prescriptions of one political party or another, and their reputation gets hurt. I don't think I have that problem. You just go where the data takes you. 
I try to. It's very hard to be fully objective, but I do try to. When there, when there's a policy issue where I know there's another side that has an argument, I try to recognize the other argument, even if I don't agree with it. The tools you developed are probably too complicated to discuss in any detail for this in this conversation. But if we try to discuss them in peripheral detail, your vector autoregression, this is basically a tool to allow you to try and tease out whether a specific policy is having an effect on the economy and how. Is that right? The vector autoregressions themselves are simply a way of summarizing data. What I did with them was look for ways to use them to answer questions about causal effects. I think it's possible to explain non-technically the basic idea. If you just look at a plot of interest rates against inflation, you'll see that interest rates are high when inflation is high. This is true over time across countries. Interest rates going up and inflation going up go together. But most central bankers think that when inflation is high, they can stop it or reduce it by raising interest rates. So the question is, why, how, how could they get this idea when the data seem to say that high interest rates go with high inflation? And this is a situation where there's causal effects in two directions. When inflation goes up, central bankers raise interest rates to try to stop the inflation, and they do succeed. It's just that the causal channel in which interest rate rises bring inflation down are not dominant when you look over at the data over a long period of time. So what I did was try to find a way to look at the data and separate the two kinds of causal effects, the one in which the central bank deliberately raises interest rates to reduce inflation and succeeds, and the other effect, which is that when inflation goes up, it wakes up the central banks and they decide they better do something and raise interest rates. <laughs> Given everything else that's going on, this data must be buried in masses of what I suppose one might describe as noise. So it's pretty hard to tease out, I imagine. Well, interest rates are very well measured, so there's no worry about that. Inflation is much more complicated because it's, in principle, an average across all prices in the economy of rates of growth of prices. And what we mean by all prices is not at all clear. So there's noise in the measurement of inflation. And then it's also true that inflation is influenced by many things besides monetary policy. And so if you think of that as noise, that's a reason why we don't get really precise estimates of the effects of uh, monetary policy on the economy. And how difficult is it for policymakers to then live with the uncertainty that comes out of the models? Because if you're not getting precise effects, you're giving ranges of possibility, of probability, that some, something will have an effect. Is that something that is easily accepted? Policymakers are very aware that any projections they get from economic models are uncertain. So at least the better policymakers 
don't just look at the central forecast. If you raise interest rates by 1%, it will reduce inflation by a half percent over the next year. Uh, they'll ask the modelers to give an, a range of possible outcomes. And then on top of that, uh, because they know that estimates of the effects of what of their actions are uncertain and because there are many other influences on inflation or level of employment that are not perfectly captured in the model, they make decisions contingently. And in fact, they all, the U.S. Federal Reserve has uh, made it quite explicit that even though they publish the Federal Open Market Committee members' forecasts of interest rates over the next year or two, that this doesn't mean that they are committed to a fixed path of policy actions. They are going to look at data as it comes in. So if inflation is going up and they raise interest rates to slow it, if it doesn't work at first, they'll raise them higher. Uh, or if it turns out that they've acted too aggressively and the economy starts to go into recession, they'll cut back on their interest rate rises. It's a general principle of if, you, if you're making decisions over time subject to uncertainty, you can always adapt your policy actions to new data that's coming in, and that helps you achieve desired results even if you're always uncertain about exactly what's going to happen next. Perhaps it's the, it's the public reception of uncertainty which is the problem. Is it the public desire for confidence in the policies that are being enacted that is problematic. And when I say problematic, I think it's that there seems to be a general dislike of people making uncertain statements, saying, well, if we try this, it might work, and but then we may have to do this if that isn't working. That wouldn't go down well in most places. This was the appeal and is the appeal of the inflation targeting regime that most central banks have followed for some years now. There was a time when when many economists and many policymakers pushed for the for the Federal Reserve and other central banks to commit to a rate of growth of the stock of money and make a announcement of what their target was and report to Congress if there were any deviation from the target. But the public doesn't really care about the rate of growth of the money stock. The public does care about inflation. The advantage of the inflation-targeting environment is that the Fed or the central bank in other countries announces that it plans to make inflation be approximately some number. Most places, it's 2 percent. Uh, most advanced economies, it's 2 percent they target. And that's something the public does care about. And they don't really care about exactly how the Fed or the other central bank goes about getting that target so long as it can deliver it. And it's been, since central banks have started doing this, it's worked surprisingly well with the qualification that in recent years, what's happened is the actual inflation rate has been a bit below the 2% target in most countries, even though not very much below. It's been 1.5%, 1%, 1.8%. That's below target, but it's really within the margin of error. And financial markets and people generally seem to just assume that one way or the other, the Fed will keep inflation close to 2%. And that has taken a lot of uncertainty out of monetary policy and worries about inflation. 
On the other hand, fiscal policy in the U.S. today is very uncertain. We're running big deficits. Most people think we can't do this forever, but nobody has a clear plan for what's going to be done about it. I wanted to ask you uh, a question which might be stupid, I don't know, but does your work help you understand why money is so very important in our society? Yes, it's something that, that I've worked on that is an active area of research now for a number of economists. One thing that's been developing in the last decade or two is a broader understanding of what money is, what plays the function of money. Money is important because it economizes on information. So if I go into a sandwich shop and ask for a sandwich and say, I'll give you a piece of paper that says I owe you $8 and I'll pay you $8.50 in three months, I won't get my sandwich. But if I go in with $8.50 in cash, I'll get my sandwich. And that's because an IOU is worthless unless you really know the person who issued it and what their financial situation is and how reliable they are. And the sandwich shop owner has no way to check that with me. But there's no problem in figuring out whether the – or hardly any problem in figuring out whether the cash I hand over is, is real non-counterfeit cash. But there are other things besides money that have something of that role. And one of the things that happened in the Great Recession was that some kinds of securities that financial institutions had treated as if they were cash, that is, treated as if they required no checking on their provenance, the way a, treasury, a U.S. Treasury bill – U.S. Treasury bill is also information-free. You don't have to know anything except – that it's a three-month treasury bill. You don't have to know what its serial number is mm -hmm. uh, if, you, if you're thinking of buying it. But people started to treat securities that were backed by mortgages as if they were like treasury bills or cash. And suddenly, markets realized that they weren't, that you had to actually look at what was backing these securities. And that was a major part of what messed the financial markets up. And understanding how that happened, how we could prevent it happening again, is a very active way, uh, area of research now. I did want to ask you about horse riding. You mentioned it in your biography. <laughs> yes, I ride, I ride a horse. I own a horse. And that's uh, a, a relatively recent thing. Maybe 10 years I've been doing it now. <laughs> I guess most people uh, start riding when they're a child if they're going to ride at all. Well, I did. I, I took lessons when I was about six years old. My family lived in Germany after the war for several years, and I took riding lessons then, not for a long time, and I didn't get to be very good. I was only six years old. Uh, but it did mean that I wasn't afraid of horses and knew some of, basic, of the basics. And... Um, I'm actually right now recovering from a fall off my horse two weeks ago <laughs> that um, left me with a couple of broken ribs. Were you doing anything it, it, fancy when the fall happened? Or? No, my, my horse just got scared by a cat. <laughs> it is unfortunately a, a dangerous hobby. You have to accept the chance that you will get injured from time to time and hope that it never, 
turns out to be serious. Yes. Is this the first breakage or have there been others? No, I've never broken anything before. I've fallen off several times before, but always just with a couple of sore muscles afterwards. Yes. Well, as you say, um, that, that sort of goes with the territory. Yeah, what's your horse called? <laughs> His full name is La Gemerée Aladin Lancelot. He's a, a cheval canadien. It's a small breed. Right. Very closely controlled registry. Well, um, he, but we call him Lance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I asked that. <laughs> Unexpectedly wonderful answer. Yeah, it's hard work looking after a horse, though. There's quite a lot of stuff to do. Yeah, I I take regular lessons and I try to ride at least twice a week during academic year and three times a week in the summer um, so as to stay in shape. I wonder if you are the only horse riding laureate. Do you know? Hmm, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I, I don't know of any others. <laughs> Most laureates become laureates when they're in their 60s or so. Not many people take up riding at that age. <laughs> So I'm, I probably am unique. Also, most laureates would carefully balance the risks against the benefits and decided it didn't make sense. <laughs> it's, it's really very warming to hear of this streak of irrationality running through you. I like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. This podcast was produced by Phil Tinterland for Noble Media. The host was Adam Smith, and the producer was me, Fanny Harjestam. Music by Epidemic Sound. Make sure to visit the official website nobelprize.org for more in-depth content on the laureate's awarded work. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.